Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey everybody, it's Jim Mallard here. Welcome to the Mallard Report. The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and the Curse of Oak Island and many other things, Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. I want to welcome everybody to this evening's program. I hope everybody's staying warm. And if you're not, and you're feeling a little cold, you might want to just pause today's show and come back to it in a little bit. But we'll talk to that. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Three strangers find themselves pulling in different directions, pull in a small town in the middle of Ohio, a force reeling them in, like a needle drawn to the compass of the north, a powerless stray from impending convergence, where they must take a stand versus good versus evil. But what happens if the worst fear happens, which is evil, is the face of good? Must read. A novel from Daniel Belts. He's coming on the program here at the end of uh, uh, beginning of February, and the, the novel comes out February sixth. Tonight, my guest is author, explorer, ready for it, winter site manager of the South Pole in Antarctica, Wayne L. Light. He is the author of new book, Free Winners at the, at the South Pole, the site manager of the South Pole Station, responsible for selecting, training, and health and safety of a 46-man crew, which sounds like a nightmare in amongst itself, but we'll break that down, I'm sure. Few people on the planet can say they know what it feels like to walk in the winter darkness of the South Pole, but White says he like White can. He's walked several thousand miles oh, and never missed a day outside. You are insane. Regardless of the conditions... <laughs> Despite the hardships and disasters and feeling helpless of, of a global pandemic unfolding on, on the horizon, Wayne and his crews prevailed. And he's alive to talk about it, and he joins us tonight. How are you doing tonight, Wayne? Jim, I'm doing well, and it's a, a real pleasure being on your show. Quite an honor. I've, I've, uh, I've done some research on you and what you do, and I just think it's great. So it's an honor being here tonight. Well, it's an honor having you. First and foremost, let's thank you for your military service. So thank you for that. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for that. No one did in the 1970s, let me tell you. Oh, I was going to say. Different days. Different days for sure. Okay, so, but I feel like, I feel like I'm fast-forwarding a lot, but but I have to because I'm interested. Somebody calls you up and says, hey, I've got this cool job for you. Bad pun. <laughs> and says you could you could be the the station manager at the South Pole, and you say you're out of your mind. No. No, no, no. It, it didn't quite go down like that. It was something that uh, I write about it in my book. You know, cold three winters at the South Pole. How I, you know, how I landed that that first job, and I, I've worked overseas for many years. And it was something where I'd always wanted to do it. I've always been attracted to harsh conditions, and uh, more so um, the great explorers of the past, the guys that really got out there and did something. And while I had. Um, been fortunate to work in the tropics and work around the world for you know years i hadn't been to antarctica and it was something i felt you know i was really lacking so when i when i when i got the opportunity to go uh which was simply an advertisement to start uh, boy i jumped at it and um, i gave up a great job to go go south you 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 were the only person to answer that that that, that advertisement <laughs> oh i'm sure they had plenty i'm sure they did <laughs> I, or i i think they did uh, you know i don't know <laughs> they, they <laughs> sold you on a whole bunch of stuff okay so yeah. you mentioned the tropics and i'm thinking antarctica so there's literally no more two opposite places each with their own difficulties because heat poses its own issues yeah fair enough right but okay so mm -hmm. you pack your bag in your best insulated underwear and all this other stuff to go to south america or south, the South Pole, South America. Yeah. Even further south. 
But the first time, I mean, this is like the perfect time to be having this conversation because most of America had that cold snap, what was that, a month ago, where it was record yeah. colds. But, I mean, that's a good day down there, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What we would think is, is cold. What I, I had the whole, you know, cold is a relative thing. And I write a lot about that in the book, how it was. I, I grew up in the Midwest and in Iowa, which was cold. And I had worked in Alaska, although I was out in the Aleutians, which is warmer, but I'd been to mainland Alaska too. But I'd never experienced cold like when I first got off that aircraft at the South Pole, even though it was the, the start of their summer. Uh, it's, it's a whole new experience. As I say, because the picture on the cover of the book, if you guys haven't seen it, I'll make sure I get it linked in the show notes. Is this guy freezing to death? <laughs> I, I actually, I was quite warm, but that picture is wonderful. <laughs> it was. Uh, I look like I'm freezing because my face is filled with ice. Uh, it was taken by Dr. Jeffrey Chan. I had just come back from the station. I'd been out for a walk about seven miles or so, and it was taken at minus 104. Um, so I was definitely frozen, but with the clothes I was wearing, I was just fine. And it, I'd been outside a well, lot, a thousands of miles by then, so I, I knew how to deal with that cold weather. But the, the person in me comes back to the fact, okay, yes, you've got warm clothes on, and yes, I know you can stay plenty warm. How did you get a camera to work at minus 104? Oh, yeah, Jim, that's a whole other thing. We have a lot of, I have a lot of budding photographers down there who, who, um, would practice during the winters and one of the first things that was a problem was um it wasn't so much the action on the cameras or even electronics it was the batteries and i've got a video that's on um i don't know where that's at it's probably on uh Oh, I don't know exactly. There's several that are on YouTube's and things, but there's one that had uh, that was taken for the Explorers Club in twenty in twenty twenty. That was a about a five minute video, three minute video, and what it doesn't have is the outtakes. Well, the outtakes, uh, what happens is the camera dies a time or two because that you know it was minus eighty five or something like that, and the wind was blowing really hard, and it would kill the batteries just really quickly. So the guys learn quickly you know, how to, how to, how, how long a camera can last and what you can do to make it last as long as possible. Which is what? Build a fire? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah. I mean, they, there's different ways, insulation, battery packs, chemical packs, things that they would do. I, I used to take a camera with me and I would, it would, I'd lose the battery after a couple miles out. Cause all I was, I had it next to my body using the body heat as best I could, but the battery would still die. Same with my radio, like the radio that I'd carry out of the station. It wouldn't last all that long. So you had a 40, what did I read, 46-man crew, so 40, 50 people. Um, talk to me about, like, day-to-day life, because I'm sure what I take for granted is, is issues down there. Like, we're mentioning oh, all this frozen yeah. temperatures. I mean, water is a problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's nothing like it. It's, and, and I think what I, what I, I think... A lot of people will enjoy about the book is I talk about the recruitment process and the process to get hired down there and the kind of people that apply and the interview process that you go through to be a particularly a winner over. That's all. Wait, different wait. Things. There's more to just saying yes. I'll go with you. <laughs> I, yeah. We <laughs> listen. We well. I mean, I write about that. There's you know, there's folks that might raise their hand quickly and say I'm going, and then you once they're down there, you don't want them. So there's all kinds of vetting that occurs to make sure that you don't, you know, you spend a lot of money on someone to get them that far south. And then you take a chance that once that last aircraft flies out February 15th, you're stuck to it with them till maybe November. And that's, that's a long time to be with someone that's, you know, gone crazy or is unhappy or whatever. So there is a vetting process prior. And, um, and sometimes it's difficult to recruit. And sometimes you end up taking someone who maybe, you know, you're not sure of, but most people that go down there, you know, superb folks, and um, they want to be there. And uh, you know, it's just just nothing like a, a South Pole winter crew, which actually for me ranged from 40, 40 to or forty-two to forty-five. I think I'm wrong in the in the book because we didn't recruit one position. But that's the crew, and you're with those people for months and months in total isolation, and and it's and very many interesting issues happen both technically with with the with the site and things you have to uh, take care of to make sure the water lines don't freeze that the generators run and then the more interesting for most people the people situations what occurs with people in isolation for that long yeah i I, I kind of bridged that question of technical jargon with but when you get people involved 46 people no matter where they're at there's going to be personality is a nice way to put that right (laughs) <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 you know, you think you know somebody, but like I write in the book, 
in Denver office at the Centennial uh, headquarters, uh, you're interviewing this person wearing a nice wearing nice clothes. You have something they want. They want to go to the South Pole. They'll tell you about anything. They're all, they're pleasing. They're this. They're that. Well, you know, maybe four months, five months later, down there when it's minus 100, it's been dark for months, and they're and and they're 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 sick of everything. Then see, you know how 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 you know how they are, and and most people I've found to get through it just fine. But some folks do have a hard time with it, and then you can have issues, and it's a real rough place to have issues with people because your options are kind of limited to what you can do. Yeah, I was going to say, but let's let's dive back into the actual problem there. You said months yeah. of darkness. Yeah. Yeah, the sun starts going down. Now, see, the last aircraft leaves February 15th, and you're going to start to see the, the sun going down a little bit each day, and it makes these long shadows when you're outside. And finally around, let's see, February, March, and March or something, it starts getting into a certain phase of darkness, and that'll last all the way up until about, you know, beginning of September or so. So you have months of, you know, darkness. So not only will you not have another aircraft, or you're going to be totally isolated. The temperature is going to drop, and your um, uh, and then it's dark. And that and that some people have a hard time with darkness, and particularly for that long. Well, I was going to say being dark outside all the time can't help your mood or knowing what time is yeah. what time's up. Okay, I'm, this just popped in my mind. I'm going to ask it like an idiot because I didn't look it up. Like I said, just literally popped in my mind. <laughs> Which somehow baffles me because we were talking before the show about how I spend a week looking at this stuff and kind of digging into it. But here we are, found something I didn't look up. I'm familiar with the Northern Lights, with you know all the great yeah light show. Is there any, is there a Southern equivalent? Yeah, there, there sure is. That's a great question. Nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, there is uh, the the Aurora Australis versus the Aurora Borealis in the North, and it's basically the same. I don't know which one would have a higher intensity. Um, but it, it's the same kind of thing. So when I was out walking, you might it might be total darkness, but you could have a raging aurora above or a full moon, which was another thing I really liked when I was out there. And I'm not going to I'm not going to say it was like daylight, but I'm going to say that it is. You could you could make out things, and that, and it was um, you know you weren't going to get a suntan. Let me tell you that. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I don't think so. It's moonshine or something. You know, you get I don't know. One of my Australian listeners has pointed out they had 105 positive degrees or Fahrenheit last week. So okay, see there you go. <laughs> either way, like I'm sitting at 40 right now, and I'm thinking 105 sounds hot, and a negative 105 sounds just miserable. Um, <laughs> I'll take my 40, I guess, and be happy. Yeah, sure uh, thing. Uh, so, what kind of things are going on down there? Because obviously, you're not um, building condos and moving people down there. Yeah, no, we have, um, it's basically the National Science Foundation runs the, uh, you know, our Antarctic operations and, and they are, uh, to me, a fantastic organization. It's all about science. That's really what it's supposed to be. Uh, different experiments. There's five large experiments down there at all times with the ice cube neutrino detector, the South Pole telescope the Marvin Pomerantz um, Observatory, the Arrow, and then uh, and there's other things that they have going on, uh, you know, a myriad of other experiments, uh, everything from capturing microscopic meteorites to uh, at one point we had a really interesting ice core operation down there. So um, it's all about science. And then, of course, with guys like me and what we did as a crew, most of us were support staff to that. Uh, we had a group of about eight or so scientists that, that went it over with us. They were responsible for those keeping those projects running. And then we made sure, uh, they, my crew made sure that all the life support systems worked, you know, to keep everything up. And then, then I was, I was uh, in charge of that. Isn't it a little unsettling to be drilling into the thing that you're living on? It's you know it's interesting, but you you know um, uh, you know Jim that that uh, that South Pole station sits on nearly two miles of ice. Um, it's yeah, on an old continent. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, I mean it's it's amazing when you you get there, you find out you're at ninety three hundred feet, and it's ice basically that you're standing on for that for that far. And that the unnerving thing is there's some ice tunnels that run under the under the place that we use for to bring water in and sewage out and things. And you'll be down there in these ice tunnels, and you'll hear equipment running above. That's a little bit unnerving. <laughs> Underground and ice, and thinking about worst case scenario, they're like a collapse or something. That's a little area. I didn't care for the ice tunnels that much, but they they have their own fascinating aspects too. 
So how how far under the surface did you get? This out of morbid curiosity. I think, I think they were around fifty feet or so. They probably varied. I think I asked somebody that once, and I could be wrong. Um, well, that's far enough. This, yeah, it's far <laughs> enough. If it collapses, it's, you're not going to be digging yourself out. Um, but it uh, they they run for a couple of thousand feet in different directions and things out from the out from the the um, part of the main station there. So let's talk about the other other part of this that I'm fascinated by. Talk about like communication in the home. The things yeah. we take for granted. We're having a phone conversation right now. Yeah, yeah. I'd, t- I'd say this. You know, my my big thing in life is is whether it's you know reg- the exploration. Um, I've worked around the world at, at places to military type installations that uh, like Wake Island where there was a great battle or Midway uh, Atoll another great battle. Spent years uh, at these kind of places and. It's a big deal. Those that have gone before us and how well, how what they faced, and those early pulleys from the 1957 crew, you know, they had radio and they were getting patched through on a phone to talk to a family member. God knows how often they even got to do that. Now there is internet at the South Pole. However, it's not super high speed. Uh, it's restricted to pretty much, um, you know, uh, emails and oh, we download things and you can download. Uh, Certain things, but if one person gets on there and decides to download movies, it messes. It's it's. There's not enough bandwidth, and it messes it up for the rest of the crew. The point I'm making is, is oh, and then I should say the internet is also not 24 hours a day. There's a strong satellite that maybe goes for four hours, then a little weaker one that might be you know another three or four hours, and then one that hardly worked at all for a couple hours. So you your 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 communications at home was not like you and I are, are having right now. However, it's way, it's way much more than those early fellows that were down there um, with you know, very little communications abilities. Can you imagine being one of those early guys down there? I yeah. Mean, I, mean, sure, I, I am sure you have. So go ahead and tell me mm-hmm. about this because, like I said, it's got my juices flowing because I'm, well, trying not well, to freeze. I was, in, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was in contact with some of the guys. That was the thing on my cruise that I tried to do. I tried to bring in a lot of the historical stuff. And, um, you know, every cruise is different. Some crews, they're not into that. They don't really care. Other crews maybe care a little bit more. But that was a big deal in my life because I'm, I'm, I was so big on exploration and such. And so those early guys, you know, that were there in 57, you, you know, you hear stories about what they did. Now, they were Navy, too, though, so that brought up a whole other thing. They're Navy, and that has a certain discipline to it, and, and too, and that probably helped them, although they had some scientists with them. Um, now, you know, we're all civilians, and, of course, now you know, you've got all kinds of different viewpoints, and, 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 and people are a little bit different than they were in 1957 than, a, you know, a naval person in 1957. But those early guys, you know, they didn't have it like, like we have it now. And um, I just held them in the highest regard. But go back farther. Go back to the people that were first at the South Pole. Ernest Shackleton making it 97 miles away. Um, Roll Amundsen, the first to the South Pole, but by doing it, he ate his dogs while he was while he was you know um, moving forward, using them for fuel. And then Robert Falcon Scott making it to the South Pole, mostly man hauling, and then dying with his crew on the way back. Um, those are the guys that you can't hardly believe what they did. It's amazing. Yeah, that's quite a feat. Okay, so I, I'm going to f- love this. So you, you started. You said you were in Denver. Is that where you left from to go to the South Pole? Yeah, yeah. You end up. You're in Denver. You go. You, you know, I, I you would be there for me as the winter site manager, recruiting people, basically doing interviews. Then we run them through training, uh, a, a medical training or a. Um, uh, there was a fire training school, and then we went to a team building training up in the mountains in Estes Park. Well, and well, you actually deployed hold on, hold on, from Denver. Stop! Stop! Yeah. Stop! Stop! Fire training. Um, yeah. Holy! I hadn't thought about that until, again until you just said that. Because traditionally, you spray water on fire. I'm not sure you can move enough water at this point to stop what you're. Wow. Okay. So give me yeah. a little bit about that. <laughs> well, let me. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> We, we uh, it's, here's what happens during the summer period, which is around it's around November first to February fifteenth. There's a group of seven or nine firefighters, real firefighters down there, are firefighters. They're aircraft firefighters that are stationed there during the summer warm months and 24 hours of light to support aircraft. Could you know if there was a fire outside or in, after they leave, your crew is the 911. 
that's it. The station starts burning. You have to respond with these guys that had a week training in Denver, and hopefully you've picked up a couple of people that maybe they were a firefighter before, maybe they went through fire school in the Navy, and they had extra skills. I was always looking for that when we were doing the interviews. But when you when that alarm rang that there's fire in the station, you go, and these guys put on that bunker gear, and they have to go. There isn't water. There's, they would be using a lot of dry chemical. The main thing being, I, I you know, is what I was always a proponent of is, is fire prevention, not fire, you know, putting it out. And it goes back to, I have a safety background. I worked many years ago prior to project management doing environmental safety work. And all prior to that in the Marines many years ago, we had a statement, better to uh, sweat in peacetime than bleed in war. And it kind of goes to that, you know, fire prevention, prevent it from happening um, if you can by being careful with things like candles and any kind of open flames or um, the, the type of things that, you know, you need to really be a, pay attention to because they could cause a fire. And um, uh, so far, so good. But, you know, every crew has faced some kind of fire thing during their winters. Uh, to this point, knock on wood, nothing super major, but there have been, you know, minor fires that have occurred, and those, and those gallant one-week trained firefighters were able to do what they needed to do. That's, I mean, I guess you get that many people, things happen. Still crazy yeah, to think yeah. about, though. Yeah, I mean, anything can happen. We had a fan, fans burn, the electric motor, you know, winding started going. We had a couple of something in a power plant once that was kind of scary because it's near a fuel line, although it's diesel fuel and it takes a, it's got a higher flash point. Nonetheless, it really, when that fire alarm went, boy, I'll tell you, nothing got my attention like that because it tells you there's fire in the station. And that was, that will definitely get your attention. As I say, and there's no fear worse than having no station and no communication, and then you're just, ugh. Oh, yeah, if that station burnt. Now, there's a lifeboat thing in the station. There's actually a wing that can be it can be uh, doors shut, uh, even though it's inside the station. It has these exterior doors, and you could spend the winter in there with your crew with this little generator and sleeping on each other. Um, you know, it, it would be really rough, but that's what would happen under the worst conditions that, thank God, have never happened. Oh, that sounds much better than standing outside freezing. <laughs> that would be much better than that. <laughs> About anything would be better than that. <laughs> oh, but still. Um, okay, so back to leaving from Denver. I'm sure there's no non-flight stops from Denver International to the South Pole. No, um, basically you fly, uh, if you're going to the South Pole Station, you end up flying to New Zealand, and there is a deployment center in Christchurch, New Zealand, which you get uh, the new people, um, or everyone, to some extent, gets their cold weather clothing. It's issued there. Certain things you buy yourself, but most of it is is issued there. You go through a little bit of training. You get your shots updated and all that, and then you board your uh, the first aircraft from Christchurch, New Zealand, to... Uh, to McMurdo Station to start. It's a long process getting south. Yeah, I was going to say, and then you get there, and you have this new luggage that you've acquired. When does it, I mean, how long does it take you, how do I word this? Because, like, when you go outside on a really cold day, it hits, you know, like, there's steps, right? You get two or three steps outside, and then you take that one deep breath in finally, and you're like, oh, it's cold out here today. I'm assuming that's the same once you get off the plane on the South Pole? Yeah, I write about that. I got off the aircraft. Uh, it was and it and and, um, and I thought. I mean, I grew up in cold weather in Iowa. It, could, it would get cold in the winter time, um, you know, minus and all that. And, uh, but I got off the plane, and uh, it would have been in October, kind of toward the end of October for that first year. And I was outside, and um, and uh, I was kind of shocked by it, even though I'm wearing cold clothes. That for the most part you're protected. Someone said, "Hey." You got to, you know, hanging around the aircraft trying to help with luggage and stuff. Just arrived, looking at this just vast whiteness in every direction. And someone says, "Your nose is starting to frostbite." And I, I immediately went in the station, and I was just shocked how fast it happened. And it was, it was minus fifty-eight, and the wind was blowing a bit too. And later, I would have found that. I'm not gonna say it was warm, but later I would have seen that as a, you know, a, just a fine day. While at the time, though, I have to admit, it scared me. It, it caught my attention. So I'm looking at you on this cover again, and I see this nice warm jacket. And then I picture, what's the kid from the Christmas story, where he's all bundled up and ready to go outside? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So where, where's the balance between the kid from the, the Christmas story and you on this cover? Are you yeah. How many layers you got there? 
I got layers. You know, I'm wearing the, I'm wearing in, in that in that cover shot. I'm wearing two sets of underwear, a kind of a nylon set, then a then a kind of a fleece set, and then I've got these cold weather military pants on that are also insulated. I'm wearing two layers of socks, um, mucklucks and that particular thing that really aren't rated for that temperature, but I, I did use them. And then under that under that, that, that wolf parka that you see I'm wearing um, I'm wearing about two or three layers too on the coldest day and then I add another layer. So I probably got three layers on, maybe four sometimes, depending on what kind of stuff I'm wearing. Uh, one of the chatters has popped up. Do you ever get used to this? I did. I mean, I really did after almost three years there in that, those winters, and particularly because I did a back-to-back winter where I, I left and then came back. Um, I, uh, I felt, I felt normal, you know, out, outside. I didn't uh, at first. I, I, I took it easy. I don't ever rush into things. I don't ever go into anything cocky. Anytime I've ever done that, it didn't work out well. So I've learned to proceed cautiously with things. And my time outside was very cautious on how what I did and walking away from the station and getting farther and farther and farther out and not doing anything stupid. Uh, and then I did get to the point to where it was just natural. You know, I, I used to go out in storms in the and I couldn't see, and I'd spin around and try to get disoriented, and then, you know, I could get back to the station. Of course, it was easy, a lot of just the wind direction. But... um but again, I'm, I'm, when I'm, when Jim, I'm, I got to really hit the hard point that not cocky and, and very, very, very careful. Uh, and, you know, the time you're going to have a problem is when you don't, you're not careful. And the one day you forget something or you decide to do something a little different or whatever the hell. And so you got to be, you know, cautious. And I was. But I got to the point to where I was absolutely felt normal out there in the worst conditions. Wait, wait. Let's drill down on that for a second for those people who. So I'm picturing this white, white out, right? Yeah, yeah. And you're spinning around, playing pin the tail on the donkey, trying to get yourself lost. <laughs> and you've got one base comp. I'm assuming there's more than one building, so we're going to call it a complex. But that's it. Yeah. But it, it's yeah. still white out. So how are you yeah. navigating back based on your... Oh, it was fairly easy. I did that, you know, because the thing is, is that what I, I mean, again, I wouldn't have done that the first year or so. I was really cautious. And I, if I knew, and also it depended where I, where I was with the bad weather. With the worst weather, there were certain areas I wouldn't go because it could get really, really treacherous. So I was more careful. But when it comes to like a, a, a whiteout thing, you, you know where the wind's coming from right away. And the other interesting thing that people don't know is sometimes with even a whiteout, if you look up, the sky's not obscured, and you can see you can see stars. And I used to use stars for navigation too. Not, I'm not talking about sophisticated navigation. I'm just saying that I knew that star was over the station. And I had a time with one of my guys one time. We were out, and it was a terrible storm. And I ran into him on the flag line, and he said, "Where's the station?" And um, I wrote about that in the book because it scared me because I thought, "Oh my God, he didn't know where the station was." And I said, "It's under that star right there." And then you know, follow the flag line, but. You just got to learn those things, you know, and not be do stupid stuff, too. If it was whiteout conditions, I wasn't going to go miles away from the station. That would have been, you know, insane. I was careful, but there's things you learn after a while to where, you know, you're more comfortable with it. In the first year, I'd have been terrified at some of that stuff, which rightfully so. You should be. I was going to say, I mean, stupid. being Ice Cube scares me to no end at this point. I mean, we're only halfway from yeah. the show, and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I'm, you probably didn't want to interview me. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, I, I just had somebody write on my Amazon page an interesting thing uh, it was uh, about Jack London's book, To Build a Fire, and they made a funny thing where he, like, he should have read my book prior to his writing that story, but no, Jack London is a real writer. He's a, you know, classically great writer, and To Build a Fire by him is this visceral thing on freezing to death and cold and how it affects you, and there's nothing, there's nothing good about it. Um, I mean, it's it's scary. Where you know, it's 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 a it, it's a it's a scary thing to think of freezing to death. And another thing I learned, you know, they talk about you know, oh, I you go to sleep. You know, you well maybe you go to sleep, but I'll tell you what, if I was out for in that out way out and it's cold and the wind's blowing, I'd take my gloves off, let's say, to do something. Your hands froze so fast you couldn't believe it, and it hurt like hell, really, really hurt, and it took. It took some time to get the circulation back, so there was pain involved with that. You had to, you know, be careful. 
So I guess the next fun question at this point is, so you're back in the base. So what is base temperature? Because I'm assuming it's not a robust 70 degrees like my house is right now. No, you know, the actual in the station, we tended to run it cooler. Some people liked it really cool. Like my room would probably be in the 50s. Um, and I did never worry about it. it. had a little heating thing. I don't know if it worked or not, but I kind of liked the whole thing with blankets and things like that. Uh, other people liked it a little warmer, but the station temperature is probably running probably in the you know 60s or so, and then colder in some places. We actually had one wing that we didn't heat, and it would it would still stay to where it wasn't freezing pipes and stuff, but it was it was very very cool, and we would put vegetables and things like that that we were, we were going to have for the for the for the winter. So most people preferred it preferred it cool in the station, and we wore things like you know sweatshirts and things like that. So this this uh, gives a whole new meaning to a hot shower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how about a shower where you can only take two a week, and they're supposed to be two minutes apiece? So that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say because, jeez, uh, uh, Pete, that's a lot of water to heat for. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. Not, not the rabbit hole. I just want to go down, but the rabbit hole I want to go down at this moment is I'm thinking between ice and snow. Because I hate ice here, but you live mm-hmm. on ice. Yeah. So h- how are you walking around? I mean, okay, this is that's a great great question. It was something I asked my boss prior to my first deployment because I thought, oh my god, you're walking on a sheet of ice. I hate ice myself. Out in the Aleutians where I was in in Alaska, we had terrible ice problems and people really got hurt. I took a few falls myself through the years there. When I say ice at the South Pole, instead of snow, you actually have these small ice crystals, and they they they're they're not they don't have the cool geometric thing of a snow you know like a snow crystal. They're more of a, a long you know cylindrical thing. They don't really interlock the same way. So you're, you're not standing helping, on you're that. not helping the ice thing at this moment. Just so you know. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> but, but there are places where, you know, if something would warm up or something would happen, equipment gets used, it can make some hard surfaces. But you're, it's more like stand, you feel more like you're standing on crunchy snow for oh, the okay. most part. Okay. So there is some grip there. You're not, I guess you're not yeah. wearing hockey skates. I guess is where I was headed. Yeah. No. Although there was a, st- a place under the station where the station's elevated and it, the wind would blow through and scour it. And I swear it would make, it made this real ice that you probably could, you probably could have used <laughs> ice skates there. And I, I didn't like walking on that stuff. I can't imagine. I'm still, and then you mentioned having vegetables and I'm, that was the whole other thing. Yeah. I'm sitting here thinking about this whole, you know, how do you, how do you get 50 people's worth of supplies in for six months? I mean, that's a lot of planning right there, let alone where you are. It, it, you know, yeah, and the planners in that that do that stuff are really incredible folks. The whole, the whole, um, the whole, you know, the the National Science Foundation, the Antarctic Support Contract, that their contractors, like I was, that work for them. You got some incredible people that that have done this stuff for years, probably in other places. A lot of times, there's actually several years worth of food at the South Pole. Uh, it it, it so for a winter crew could last a long time there. Now you'd run out of fuel. That'd be your problem. But as far as food goes, there's food. However, everything's frozen, so you're you know you're not getting fresh vegetables and things like that. It's frozen. Everything is frozen, and you just gotta you just gotta be a. Uh, I'm a I'm a you know former marine, and my wife says I'm really easy to please when it comes to food, and I I, I think I am. I I I can eat about anything. But there, are, which is another you know I would ask a question about picky eaters because a picky eater or somebody on weird dietary restrictions is not going to have a very good winter at the South Pole. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, there may be years worth of food there, but if you only eat uh, ham shaved by a left-handed guy, you might be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it's the cooks I thought were, were incredible. A lot of the, the, the guys that worked at, like, high-end uh, high um, establishments and things, and they knew – they knew what they were doing, and they did the best they could. But then again, they're always dealing with frozen food. They're always dealing with not having many, you know, fresh foods except for the the small hydroponics um, garden room that we had there that would supply a little bit, but it certainly wasn't enough to where everybody's eating salad every day and things like that. So these 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 chefs and their chefs, um, I think, do a, a terrific job of, of of preparing what I think is pretty damn good food, given the conditions. A tremendous task for them. What yeah. else, what else am I forgetting? I mean, we're just talking about food. So, what other little details of life that I might be missing at this point? 
Well, you know, you get into there's a lot of um, a lot of people are interested in the like the interpersonal stuff. You, we have a um, what happens with crew members and things when they're in isolation and in darkness, especially. There's um, there's a syndrome they call the T3 syndrome, and there's it's still kind of under some debate on what causes it. Some people say it's some kind of a hormone, or hormone that you, whatever you don't have or whatever, and it can affect things. Um, we have a phrase, a, a term we use for people at the South Pole, and we will say they're toasty. They're toasty, and toasty means they're 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 maybe forgetful. They get disheveled. They might act out of character. They might be kind of snappy in discussions and things and and that will be attributed that would usually happen toward the middle or in of a, of a long dark winter down there and so you know you got to just realize that especially as a leader you know you'd be looking for that I, i'd done leadership things for many years at remote sites so i was a little bit of a anomaly down there as far as um some of the folks in the program are you know it's kind of learn as you go and that can really be difficult but um the point is, is that you've got these psychological things that are going on with people, and Jim, the thing that will exacerbate it is then you have things going on with people's families at home that can turn somebody upside down because there is nothing they can do, and there's nothing I can do. If someone dies in somebody's family, if a pet gets lost, if a kid gets sick, um, it's it's just not a place to be. It's tough. Uh, the best thing is is that you've got some very great people on these crews compassionate folks uh, that will step in usually and, and help the help the person through winters. And I had several people that were having hard winters, and I was always impressed by the crew's ability to step in and, you know, help out. But all kinds of things like that occur. Uh, the most minor little thing that would occur between people up here in a normal society that you would ignore down there turn, can turn into a real problem. And I'd seen that at other sites overseas, but never, never so intensified as it was at the South Pole. So as a leader, you know, I had to be on the lookout for things that, you know, like I write in the book, you know, words today in the hallway are blows tomorrow. So, you know, you, you, you know that had happened at a Russian station. A uh, Russian, uh, I think he, all he did, he was a Russian engineer, and he told an electrician, or maybe either way it was, about the ending of a book that the guy was reading, and he got stabbed with a screwdriver. So, um People are, you know, when they get under this this duress and under these conditions, you you just gotta be you gotta be always on the lookout, uh, you know, mindful of, of that. And I saw a lot of it. So is that is that an interesting thing? Well, I'm gonna double down on this because I'm morbidly curious at this point. Uh, you know, I'm on vitamin D because there's not enough sun here in Western Pennsylvania, apparently, so I don't get enough of it. So I'm oh. assuming. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. You went. Oh, so I'm assuming that you, that's yeah. a problem for you guys. I mean, that's got to be. Yeah. 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 We take it. Well, I was taking D D three. I think it was, and the crew. Many on the crew took it, and I, I like I write in the book. I don't know if it was just a placebo for me or what. I don't know if it helped because I did not take it, so I don't know what I'd have been like without it. But because I'd read studies that said it did help, I took it. I recommended it. it did no harm. Um, I noticed a little degradation in my. Uh, little concentration things on a time or two where things happen mostly I think just because of a routine and you get you get you know uh, you get in this routine and then you think did I do this certain thing because you've done it every day and it's the same every day so you have to kind of think back but yeah we took the vitamin D3 some people like the sun lamps they they would have actual personal sun lamps uh, and that they would use these. I had one in my office in a box. I never took it out. I think I finally gave it to somebody. <laughs> and then there was the greenhouse, and the greenhouse had these strong lights. And people would go down in the greenhouse and read and listen to music and, you know, get this light. I, I never, for some reason, it was the strangest thing. I, I thought, because I'd come from these sunny climates, that I'd want to do that. But I didn't feel like it when I was there. I never wanted to do that. It just wasn't my thing. But the crew members, some of them really liked it. That's another thing I had thought about. 40, 50 people and varieties of music and books. And, uh. Anyways, okay. <laughs> My mind wanders yeah. for a moment and then... <laughs> um, okay, so, oh, wait. I'm a, I know the book's on Amazon, but where can people find you in the book? And, you know, give me that hard sell before we get off into uh, topics unknown. Oh, you know, there's a lot of stuff. If someone, if someone uh, Googles Wayne White South Pole, there's a bunch of things that comes up and there's some videos. And one thing that's happened, you know, with this... 
I've been promoting the book. Um, you know, I mean, guess Prince Harry didn't have to promote his book much. You know, <laughs> he, him and Meghan did whatever they had to do. You know, I'm not on that scale. Uh, but there's plenty of stuff, um, uh, you know, uh, on online that people can find interesting things, even if they don't want to buy the book. And actually, I wrote something about that recently on my Amazon page about focusing on do people really want to read my book? Because, uh, you know, it's got some things about me in there, and there's people out there that might not care about that. They want to read all about, you know, ice and polar bears and things like that. And uh, my book is very personalized. Um, I, I, I talk about the uh, the South Pole winter, the cruise, and because I'm the you know win, the winter manager, and I did three winters, and I'm the only one that's ever done that. It, I think it gives me uh, at least an insight into certain things, and I have my opinions. Now, so get online. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. I think it's at Walmart. And then take a look at the information before you buy it and see if it's for you. I don't know if most most authors do that. They won't I, I was going to say anybody. you might be the first in the history of this program that throw out the warning that don't buy my book. You might or no, I don't. I don't want to put words in your mouth there, but that's probably it's, the first that's come that close. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, and it's it's. I think most people will enjoy it, but I will just want to make sure they know what they're reading. And my life is an interesting life, and I uh, I've done you know a lot of things, and it 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 gives me an interesting perspective. And so in my book, I write my what I thought. I'm you know, and I'm not this neither fish nor fowl stuff isn't me. I have opinions. I write some things in the book. These are weird days where people seem to be afraid sometimes to say, oh, my God, I thought this about people, I thought this or that. I'm not afraid to do that. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I've got a lot of experience with it. I'm, I'm pretty confident, and I like to have fun. You know, when I wrote my book, Jim, I wrote it with the standpoint in the, that what I was scared to death of was they say everybody writes themselves the hero of their own novel. And there's a lot of stuff in there that would be it's pretty, it could be seen as self-aggrandizing about me because I've done a lot of things. So I tried to temper it, and I put some bad stuff in there just to kind of temper it. But it's still, you know, I'm in a, a world where there's a, you know, this kind of world, the adventure type thing, it's competitive, and you get jealous people, and you get all kinds of things flying around. And I just want to tell a tale that's honest. Uh, if people think, you know, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm self-aggrandizing, great. I'm just, I think, telling it like it is. And for me, what's normal probably isn't normal for most people. So anyway, I think it's no. a good book. I, I, to, I, I will agree with you. Read. It is a good book, and I think if if they've enjoyed the conversation tonight, they'll probably enjoy the book. So. Yeah, I hope so. I really do. I really do. I, I really love people, and um, I I hope they do. I, I don't like to disappoint folks, but you know it can happen. Yeah, we all do it from time to time. That's okay. Okay, so let's delve into this because I, we we talked a little bit, and so we're going to get here. Like I said, the uh, the classified part of this program. So how many space? Yeah. How many UFOs did you see while you were at the South Pole? <laughs> oh God! Going right I, for I'm it. Not supposed to, <laughs> I'm not supposed to tell you that's the stuff that's all a secret. No, you know. Listen, I write about that in the book. So buy the book, and then you can read about my experience with a UFO, which actually <laughs> I, I wasn't, and I and I explain it and things. But but here's the deal, and and as you know. The South Pole, you know, there's all kinds of stuff on the Internet that it's this vortex of UFO activity, and there's all these things going on, and there's secret Nazi bases from the Second World War, and all kinds of things going on down there. And, and let me tell you first off, I love that kind of stuff. I love the paranormal. I love cool stuff like that. Um, you know, I love science fiction movies. I would love that to be the case. And maybe it is, but I didn't see it. But the fact is, I was out for over 4,000 miles out walking around the place, and only one weird experience happened, and I was able to explain it. Now, with that, people will ask me all the time, and I had a guy when I was, I just came back from an assignment out in Kwajalein, out in the, out in the far uh, Pacific, and this guy walks up to me one day, and he saw my South Pole hat, and he says, so you were at the South Pole? I said, yeah, good. He says, can you tell me about the aliens that are there and the UFOs? And I said, well, let's see, I was out for several thousand miles, and I never saw anything like that. And he says, he kind of doubles down, and he says, okay, here's the deal. You can tell me. Go ahead. <laughs> you can tell me. And I, and I said, you know what? I'm sorry, but there aren't any aliens. There's none of that stuff occurring at the South Pole. And then I saw him almost slump. And so I said to him, but you know what? If I was an alien, would I tell you the truth? And I think the, 
I think he perked up a little bit after that. He, he still had the chance. So, you know what? I didn't see it. I hope it's there. That'd be cool as hell. You know, we, we show the movie The Thing, as a matter of fact, when we start a, a winter season down there. And I love that stuff. But, Jim, no, I didn't see it. That was one of the things that popped up in the chat room, asking you if you'd seen the movie The Thing. So there we are. Oh, yeah. Three versions of it. And we watch it. We watch it at the start of every uh, winter season. It's one of the first rites of passage that a crew that a crew does uh, once that station closes at the middle of February. It's uh, nothing like watching this thing in the, in the gym at the South Pole, let me tell you, being part of a winter crew. I used to say it's a training video. Tell the crew it wasn't. It's, and, and a funny thing, and I'll say it because I wrote it in the book, but I would get up in front of the, the group and say to them, who thinks there's a station gun? And there's a myth, there's a station gun. And so some people would raise their hands kind of halfway, and some people you know, didn't know and whatever. And I'd then say, okay, so if there's a station gun, how many rounds do you think it has? And they'd kind of guess, you know, they wouldn't know. And I'd say, say the crew, let's see, be 40, I'd say 41. So the crew is 42, let's say. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh yeah, obviously you'd be. <laughs> yeah, I don't need 41. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I had, you'd have fun with that kind of stuff. Those, those crews are just wonderful. Well, That's not my life down there. Well, wait, wait, assuming that you were 100% accurate, you'd only need 41. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm a Marine, so I'd get most. Okay. But anyway, I would hate to think that it would ever come to that. It just was a funny thing to do. A good, a good rite of passage, though, for um, you know a crew just starting that winter that winter season. Now we got to dispel this other one that's always going around, and I've talked about it a few times on here, and I have yet to find any proof that makes me believe it. But I'll, like, I'll still entertain it because I don't know everything. Okay, well I'll admit it. You okay? Did you find the edge of the earth while you were down there? Well, you know, for the flat earthers, yeah. boy, that, that, let me tell you, that would get our science people just crazy, just crazy when they'd hear about that stuff. Um, no, I never got to the end and kind of looked over. I would love to have, boy, that would have been a shock. But um, I don't know where that comes from because, you know, there's people that think, you know, the, the moon landing was a hoax. There's people out there that do. I met Buzz Aldrin at the South Pole of all things. He was there uh, going through that right about in the book. I think he was on the moon. I don't think he was in a studio in California, but I don't know. You know, and I love that stuff, that whole conspiracy. And I'd love to be wrong, man. It'd be cool to think that there really is a, you know, the edge of the earth there or something. But I didn't see it. Uh, crushing all our dreams right here. Okay, so let, yeah. let, let's bring this back to a little bit more of a, a realistic potential for paranormal activity then. Yeah. Morbid here, though. Somebody dies at the South Pole. What happens then? Let's, let's start with the real. You have yeah, a crew member who, for whatever medical yeah. reason, doesn't make it. What happens then? Yeah. It has happened before. It didn't happen on any of my three crews, um, but it has happened before. And there is a procedure to store them through the winter, and then they would be flown out in the, uh, uh, when, the, when the first aircraft comes in. Uh, actually, years ago, I think the Navy guys, or maybe even the first civilians, I think, signed the form that said, hey, you know, you're not getting out of here. If you get sick, know that ahead of time. That you're, you know, you're, you're going to spend the winter, whether you're alive or dead, and um, for the most part, you know, we had a, the, there was a air evacuation in 2016 in midwinter that took a couple people out. Boy, that was a phenomenal thing with just incredible planning. The people that were involved in that were just superb. But it's not something that could happen often or again that would have the conditions line up like that. You just got to know if you die down there, you're going to stay. You'll come out when the first aircraft comes. So there's a procedure for it. And I talked to the doctors and what we would do. Fortunately, we didn't have to. But we were talking about horrible things for a family, and I can't just imagine being on the other side of that. Your loved yeah. one's down there, and, oh, anyways. Yeah, it, I mean, it's happened. It, it has happened. There's a wall oh, yeah. down there that has, I think, four or five pictures on it of people that have died at the South Pole. And um, it, it's, you know, it, it has happened. So... So, why aren't you there now? <laughs> well, I'm done. You know, I did. I did three winners. <laughs> I uh, I love the place. I really, really did. I did three winners. I was the first to do that as a winter manager. However, it needs to be said that the the record number of winners is like 15. One of our, our German scientists did that, and um, um, wasn't continuous through, but nonetheless, a lot of winners. Um, but I'm now working on this book thing, and I've got some other projects. Such I uh, just came back from a, a job, a project working out at Kwajalein out in the Pacific. So I'll see what the future holds. 
but I did love the place, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, I was going to say, you kind of hedged, hedged, there's a chance, you're telling me there's a chance. Ah, <laughs> uh, who knows? You know, we'll see what happens. Contracts are a funny thing, you know, how stuff goes with that type of thing. I, I never, I, what I learned, Jim, is never, ever, ever say never. Never say never. You might be surprised what happens in, 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 in the future. Uh, in the meantime, I think my, my South Pole days are probably over. And um, uh, I've got plenty of other things still to do, and, and we'll see how that goes. You got a lot of irons in the fire, can I say that? <laughs> well, I got, you know, I got, I actually wrote another book that I wrote before Contractor that was, or that I wrote before Cold Three Winners at the South Pole. It's called Contractor. And it was about working around the world as a contractor in these remote sites and through the two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's a raucous book. And it's, a, you know, it's got it, the inside to the contract world working for the U.S. government in these sites around the world, especially in wars. But what I did is I shelved that, even though it was completed and I was kind of shopping it around, because I thought that this cold book would be would be probably more popular and get that out first and then see if, if, if it does okay, I might have more of the ability to, to, to get this contractor book out. So we'll see if that happens. I hope cold sells well enough for me to be able to do that, but we'll see. Well, if it does come out, you've got you've got an open invite to come back here because we've got to talk some more about that because that's a whole can of worms. Yeah, too. yeah, that is boy. That's got all <laughs> kinds of stuff. It's much more raucous than the cell pole of things I saw. Except I was part of it in those days, rather than the leader later. So <laughs> it's a different perspective. Obviously, okay. So let's go back on topic here because I don't want to derail into something else. But okay, so I obviously the winter season's down there starts. What do you say, February? So you're not going this winter. No, no, no. February, they're going to be closing the station probably in a, when February, February 15th, and then they're not going to be able to come out until the end of October. We'll see what happens. The COVID thing really kind of changed things a little bit. Actually, it made, there's an age thing, too, now. There's an age restriction they were putting on people at uh, 65, and it, it took a lot of the older guys out of the program because of the COVID thing. And I'm right at that age, so um, uh, we'll see what happens. Maybe the COVID restrictions will, will change in time. Um, well, we'll see. regardless of that, let's, let's just walk through this. Okay, so you're getting in there in October, so you'd have to start preparing, like what, September? When, when do you start this process? Well, if you were just going yeah. back as a, a staff member, not as leader, when would that process start? Oh, you'd start, you would then, you'd go through, let's say you went through all the, the medical, you did that, you did your interviews, you did all that. You would actually deploy to Denver office around um around in October, um, sometime around the first week or so in October, and then you'd go through all the training and things like that in Denver before you would deploy, which would be about the third week or so of October. Uh, now, there are people that come in late for the winter, so right now down there, uh, no doubt there could be someone that's hired for the winter crew that couldn't do the whole summer for whatever reason, and they're going to be showing up um, now, right now, and then to, to uh, uh, and they'll be the last crew members. The station can hold 150 people during the summertime. It's very active. All kinds of things are going on. There's flights, you know, most days. And I think there's fewer people now there down there now with the COVID because it's affected. It's affected it, and it's affected this year, from what I understand. So there's fewer people than normal for this summer. But they're putting the winter crew. You know, they've got it pretty well together right now. They might still be needing a person or two. We'll see, you know, we'll see how that, see how that goes. But um, you'd be, most people, the, the crew should be pretty much in place by now. So, but as the leader, I'm thinking that's kind of a year-long commitment, even though you're only there yeah, for... Yeah, it is. It is. The, as a, see, as a leader, you're there the whole year. You, you actually would start in the Denver office around March, April, something like that. And then you'd start to go through all the interviews and, and things that would take all the way up until about September... And you'd still be interviewing even after that because there's going to be people that drop out. Things are going to happen. But you're as a leader, when you're hired for that job working out of the Denver office, you'll show up you know, maybe April 1st or something like that and begin sitting in on all the interview panels to get the 40, 40 some, whatever it is, 40 some people uh, crew put together. And then toward then you're setting up the training that's coming up in October. You've got to do the the work for that and then you're actually there at that training you know going through all that so it's a it's a year commitment uh, actually it works out more than that uh, when you for the for the leader uh, all those months ahead of time and then and then the you know the year at the south pole because you, you deploy for a year so i'm going to ask a very niche question at this point so of course yeah. we've only got about six five minutes left anyway so the people are uh, 
interested or interested. So they're going to stay for this one too. Uh, you've you've led a lot of teams around the world, South Pole, other places. You've done a lot of interviews with people. Interviews like this, which are social, and interviews for positions which aren't. I'm talking about the position, the employee-based positions at this point. Mm-hmm. What's what's that run red flag that flies no matter what position you're filling for? What's that one red flag that always catches your attention right away that they're not going to be a good team player or not going to be a good fit? Yeah, well, you said it. If you think the person isn't a good team player, whether it's South Pole or whether it was when I was at a Wake Island or whether I was at Midway Toll or Ascension Island or these other places, if you can sense that that person is not a good team player, the last thing you want is they could be a superb technician. They could be a superb engineer. But if they can't get along with people, it's done. They're really There's nowhere to go from there. And so, so you're looking for that. You're looking for any kind of flag where that person um, will, for example, I'll ask a question. One of the questions was, uh, describe a recent mistake that you've made. God, I could tell you a mistake I made this morning. I mean, this afternoon. I, I got plenty in my life. But we had a guy once, that, he had to think back to like 1976, and he actually said that. And then he blamed it on someone else. But it's like, dude, you know, that's not being very self-aware. I mean, if, if, you, if you think you don't make mistakes until 1976, that wasn't your fault. See, little things like that, but you kind of catch on, you know. So, But it is, it's all about people. A lot of these jobs, it's, it's, it's a real balance between your technical experience, which you do need. You absolutely need it. But your ability to work with people. Yeah, I was talking to somebody the day. That's why it kind of slipped in my mind that, no matter what the position, no matter what the role in the team is, it's 90% people and then 10% it is. It's technical just, skills. It's just life, right? It's life. So Cat Ward from Paranormal Heart wants me to ask you, have you had any paranormal experiences since you didn't have any at the South Pole? Yeah, I mean, that's strange stuff. I would have said no to that, but I had. I was interviewed in another station, and I, in my um, that's the room I'm sitting in right now, it's old Baylor Norville House in Rockport, Texas, built in 1868. I've got stuff that I brought back, and I've been around the world, and I've specialized in going to these remote places. There's a battlefield in Africa once that I had a, uh, uh, some people might call it creepy. I would say it was a, an interesting experience, uh, camped alone on this battlefield in southern Africa. And um, I brought back things. I've got a, a sacred rock from a New Guinea that I brought back many years ago that it, it, had, it has issues um, and other things that are in this old house. But I make peace with it and coexist in this thing. It looks like a museum when I'm looking at because it, it is kind of a museum. I was going to say, you sent me a picture this this morning, I think it was. Phenomenal. Yeah, like I was it. sitting there playing the scout game. Every time I'd open it, I'd see something different. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's filled with stuff. I, you could, some of these things have incredible stories, and some are something I may have found on eBay, but some have, you know. <laughs> well, that's an incredible diac- find, too. Because <laughs> yeah, what do you yeah, type in to get that? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, no, I mean, I'm not. But what I'm not is I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not one of these guys who runs around saying I'm seeing spirits flying around and things like that. I don't. But I've been in some weird situations around the world, like I said, in Africa and in and, and other places to where there's 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 more out there than you know, than I think than than maybe people see. Some people I think are more much more in tune with it and they you've probably had them on your show where they could feel things that maybe some of us can't. But I've had some interesting situations and i'm very respectful of that whole you know spirit world thing um very very respectful because i don't know so i've got one more question we've got a minute left so don't feel pressured but feel pressured all right yeah this is the favorite question i love to end these shows on what's your favorite breakfast oh i have this thing called the big breakfast once a week it's like three kinds of meat uh ham uh pork chop uh bacon uh uh, God, there's something else in there too. Another me, I can't think of what it is. And then a couple of over eggs, easy. I could never eat that all day. I, I weigh 500 pounds of eight. That's <laughs> but once a week, I go to this breakfast with friends of mine, and I have that, and I love it. Oh man, that sounds good. I'm glad. I, that's why I saved that for the end of the show because otherwise, I'd be in trouble right now <laughs> thinking about all this food. Yeah, I love food. Well, Wayne, I hope I lived up to your your expectation. I mean, you kind of buttered me up pretty good to start the show, so I hope you. Are you still had a good time? Oh, uh, Jim, I meant it. I really enjoy what you do. I really, uh, I really, uh, I'm a fan. You've got some, had some great people on here. And then every now and then you get a slouch like me. But the thing is, <laughs> well, is, uh, we'll be talking again. So slouch like you means you're coming back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, plenty to talk about, my friend. But anyway, this has been a great pleasure for me, and I, I really appreciate and 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 uh, admire what you do. 
Thank you, sir, and have a good evening. Yeah, it's still evening in Texas. Have a good one. Yeah. Okay, man. There you go. There's a Wayne, Wayne Knight. Go, go check out the book. Like I said, the book kind of does match what he does here tonight. And uh, appreciate the kind words, Wayne. Uh, checks in the mail. So Germantown Runner isn't here tonight, guys. He went to a hockey game, and he missed a hell of a show. So go tag him on social media and tell him all about it. It's the Mallard Report. Yeah, the Mallard Report. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. It'll be sooner than you think. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.